Petersfield's Shine Radio. You are listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books, where, like the first doctor, I'll be turning the Bakelite dial on the TARDIS console to send us back to a book I either loved at the time or am ashamed not to have read until now. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books here on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> um, not my cup, not really. Doctor, I'm not a Doctor Who person, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, not since I used to hide behind the sofa as a, as a, um, as a small boy. I, know, I think well, I, I've not really... I can't can't really deal with that sort of stuff. It's probably the same as me, actually, but, you know. (laughs) Anyway, um, our guest this month is Nigel Farndale, um, one of our most lauded local authors, whose latest book, The Dictator's Muse, was one of my recommended reads in our June edition. It was, um, and I've read it and really enjoyed it. So even, and and I can say this because he isn't currently with us, I really enjoyed it. So that was a great tip. Rich is going to read it next. But let's start with what else we've been reading this month. Tim, over to you. Well, I've had a bit of time off, um, both holiday and then then self-isolating. So I've been catching up on quite a bit of my reading, actually. I've really enjoyed Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld. It's a novelised version of what might have happened if Hillary hadn't got married to Bill. So it's um, they meet and they have a t- tempestuous affair, but she she realises that he is he's never going to be able to keep his trousers on, oh. and that uh, that she she needs a separate life to him, and also um, well other things happen in the book as well. But but basically it's the story of what what could have happened and where we might be now if. Uh, if indeed she hadn't got married. Well, I'm staring. The reason why I asked her, I'm staring at the book now. Um, and she looks very pretty on the cover. I don't well, know if that's idealised. as well. No, I think she I think she was quite a she was quite a, uh, a beauty in her in her youth. Um, but it's not really about that. It's it's it's, a, it's about a lot about American politics, which I find fascinating. Yes. Um, but also it's a, it's it's about, I suppose, what it's like, what it's like to be a a very smart political woman in America. I suppose that's what it's what it's about. Because um, she were, clearly was when she was uh, a student and as a, as a doctoral student and as a as a lawyer, she was clearly exceptional, um, like he was as well, very mm-hmm. exceptional. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think her part of her got got lost in in the whole Hill and Bill thing. And uh, so this is what could have happened if she hadn't. That sounds really, really, and it fits right in. But I had no idea. I thought that was non-fiction. So I'm really yeah. Yeah, fascinated. No, it's, it's a great, it's a great novel. And she wrote, she wrote another book about um, uh, one of the Bushes, uh, that the uh, Laura Bush, um, which um, was a, was a big oh, seller. Yeah. And I haven't read it called An American Wife. Yes, I did. And didn't. I, having read this and really enjoyed this, I'm going to go back and read that next. So. Excellent. So that was the first book. On a theme of uh, a, a women's theme, if you like, um, I read a book by the new book by Catelyn Moran called More Than a Woman, which is uh, sort of autobiographical, sort of her thoughts on on the world. Um, and it's, 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 she's a brilliant writer. She's very funny. I think she's one of my favourite journalists. She, she yeah. always, always writes entertainingly, um, always has interesting ideas. She doesn't always agree with them. And a lot, there's a lot in this book that I thought, hmm, I'm not sure I agree with that. 
but there's enough that I did agree with um, and enough that makes you think, oh, God, I, haven't, I never looked at the world in quite that way before. And um, so it's good to, good to sh- you know, I suppose sharpen me up a bit, really, make me think differently. Um, and is it a sort of continuation of where she was before about how to be a woman? Or yes, so- I think so. I think it's 10 years on. She's, uh, I think it's nearly 10 years on since that. She's kind of, uh, she thought that, I think she says in this book, she thought that, uh, in ten years, I'll be free because you know there won't be little children anymore. They'll be you know they'll all be Flame late the teens and they'll be fine. It'll be easy. Um, I mean, what's interesting about her is, of course, that she spent uh, as one of the eldest of a very big family. She spent a lot of the time as a teenager, being basically being a mother to her younger siblings, and so she did. She'd done all that before she even. Um, had a family of her, her own. own. Yeah. So, uh, so she's it's a really, she's a really interesting, really interesting character, and, and as I say, she writes she writes really well. Um, the next book I'm going to talk about is a very very short book called Assembly by Natasha Brown. Now I've never um, heard of that or the author. Well, I hadn't either, to be honest. Um, my daughter told me about it. She said that you know that she'd be reading a lot about her, um, and it is a really again a, a book that makes you think. It's um, it's very short. You read it in a, in a couple of hours, probably if not less. And um, it's, I suppose it's the, it's about the experience of, um, I think it's her story, to, to, in a certain extent, it's, although it's a novel, um, about being a black woman working in the finance world, of finance in the city, and the um, the hurdles and the uh, the things that she comes across. So it is a, as I say, a very short book. I think it could be a much longer book. In fact, I mean she. I wanted it to go on a lot, a lot more because oh, she writes really well. She's she's a she's a real crafts person. She writes really good uh, text, I think. Um, and so I, I would I would really recommend that. Although I say it is short. Did it, it? I has there been subsequent now that you you know in the way of things? Sometimes you don't hear about a book, and then suddenly you hear lots about it. So. Have you now seen how autobiographical is it? Or well, I don't, I don't know. Don't I mean, know. just just reading the just reading the uh, the blurb that you know that mm. on, the, on the book it seems like that's her her life to a certain extent. Okay. But she's clearly a, a writer to watch, and I think she will write a, a much bigger and uh, probably better uh, novel in the future. But I, I thought it was it was uh, terrific. And that, in a kind of similar vein uh, of, I suppose, quite literary fiction. Um, as I said, I had quite a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> I read uh, No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood, which oh, has yeah. been long-listed for the booker. Uh, and it is a very strange, very strange book, and I'm not sure I really got it. The first half of it is basically little short little bits of... Uh, it's a kind of book about the internet, really, and about um, being almost lost in the internet uh, and lost in social media and stuff. And it, it is quite quite a challenging read, I'd say. Um, I can't say I really enjoyed it very much. I think it was quite eye-opening, but um, I'm not sure I'll be, I'll be raving about it, uh, recommending it too wholeheartedly. I think it may not win the Booker. I think it won't win. I don't think it'll be shortlisted either. I don't think it's. Okay. I don't think it's. Um, she again. She writes good prose, uh, and I think that she will. She might write uh, something better later. But I don't think this is it. Okay. Um, and just one more to mention, which is the book I, I sort of vaguely talked about last time, which was uh, Twitch by M.G. Leonard. Um, this is a children's book. And uh, she wrote a book called Beetle Boy uh, a few years ago. Oh, yes. Um, which is kind of like a, a sort of a Roald Dahl fable. 
and it, it I think she writes really well. She's uh, entertaining. Um, this book is slightly different in that in that um, it doesn't feature any Beatles. It's about it's, it features birds actually, and it's got a uh, um, and it's more of a I suppose it's a, a sort of school type book. You know, a, a boy at school, unpop, not very popular. He loves birds. And that's where we start the book. And it's you know it's 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 gentle, it's it's light, and it's um, funny, and it's got lots going for it really. As I say, that was just one more thing. I have just managed to get my hands on a proof of the new uh, Richard Osman book, mm. the second Thursday Lucky Murder Club, you. Uh, and it is it is very good. It's it's great, and I'm really enjoying it. So, uh, but I'll tell you more about that next time when I've read it. I can't begin to tell you how my lip is curling here. She's, yeah, it, I'm afraid he's been very, very successful. I know. It's, it, it, <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, poor uh, other other writers feel that maybe maybe it should, their success should be theirs. But anyway, uh, no, no, it's not. It's not that. It's the ease with which some people get slid through. Well, unusually, I'm going to talk about an audiobook, Tim. Um, you know, I sort of slightly got into them, but. The one I'm, I keep wanting to say that I'm reading, and it's interesting how our producer John Wellsman also says reading, despite the fact that he's visually impaired. So there's something about a book in any form that we still say that. Anyway, so I'm listening to The Stranding um, by Kate Sawyer. I don't know if you... Nope, have heard. I, I, I know nothing about it at all. Obviously, it has been reviewed somewhere, which is why I've got it. But one of the things I love about audiobooks is I tend to listen to them while I'm driving. And so I don't read the blurb, because I hate reading blurbs anyway. They tend to put me off things. Um, so I don't know what's coming up next. Up it pops, so I have no preconceptions, no idea of what it's even about. Um, so I really love that. But the thing I've noticed this time is that I still prefer physical books. I just love the whole thing of them um, and to hold the heft of them and just to be able to go back if I want to and form my own world between the author and my brain reading. But there's something about the audiobook, which is a halfway house, that seems to... I don't know what it is. I've said... To myself when I was talking to Richard about it I've said make it real but that isn't true either but this is about if you like it's like Neville shoots on the beach except you start on the beach with the apocalypse a red line on the horizon and it's coming oh, and I know okay. at the moment it couldn't be more chilling um and I'm going to say why I made a backlisted choice because of that shortly but it is really compulsive and every other chapter is either on the beach in New Zealand post-apocalypse or Ruth the main protagonist Ruth's life back in the UK in the months leading up to this and so you get this complete juxtaposition of life exactly as we know it um, with with slight warning, so that the politically minded are going, oh well, the Geneva Convention, and she's basically going, la 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 la, don't want to know, can't do anything about it. I'm just going to have a lovely time. I go off to save the whales, going to New Zealand, and ironically, a whale saves her, which is no spoiler because that's the very first chapter, so you pretty much straight into it. Now it's brilliant. But I found myself, or and I found myself, going to switch the news on, as is my wont when I go down in the morning for breakfast, and then thinking, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. 
And I realised it's totally got into my head as though that apocalypse is nigh. Right. Maybe that's because it's being, it's, it's being read to you. I don't know whether that makes a difference or whether it kind of... Um, I mean, it, you're right, it's, there is something different about, about an audio book in the sense that you've got the interpretation of the reader um, who is not you. Yes. So when you, when, you, when you read a book, you just get your own... You put your own uh, self into, uh, into the text, whereas when it's read to you, you it's mediated in some way, um, either brilliantly by a fantastic actor or... or or not, as the case may be, but this obviously Don't look is, at me. Is, is well done. <laughs> but uh, but I know. But is the idea that that when you're reading something like like sort of um, uh, makes me think of the War of the Worlds, the uh, the H. G. Wells, that the, you know the idea that something that happens on the radio, which it does in 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 the in the um, whatever the the, 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 the Orson Welles uh, production of it was, um, that it has an effect. It really you really believe it somehow more because it's on the, it's. It's told to you. I think so. there's. I think there's a high degree of that, and this is narrated by the author, so she's totally giving how she wants it to be, mm-hmm. which has its own interest. But I know I definitely prefer the physical book. But I've got to say here, I'm not. I've, I've read lots more, but I realise time is short, and um, we're going to have our author coming very shortly. But I do want to give out a shout for Checkmate in Berlin by Giles Milton, which you recommended, which I bought for Richard. Um, and actually, there are times, aren't there, I really feel I ought to read it. I think it's a brilliantly written book. I began it. And because it's so well written, it again totally got in my head. And it's so... It's recounting the full horror and shambles of what happened immediately post-war in Berlin, you know, clue in the title. So from Yalta onwards, it shows how drunken and inept and off his brief Churchill was, how perfidious almost everybody was, how Russia, because they were there several months before the Allies, well, I suppose they were Allies, but post-war they weren't really, they were grabbing everything... But they completely circled all except the smallest enclave of Berlin and the absolute horror of what they did there. So nothing that any Russian oligarch does now should become the remotest surprise to any of us. It's awful. And Richard said to me, do you know what? At the moment, you don't need to have that in your head. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's fair. Um, It's fun if I'd been listening to a a podcast that... um, Dominic Sandbrook and uh, Tom Holland do call the rest is history, and they've just done uh, the Berlin Wall. So, oh. um, but it's, so it's not not and not with to the degree of horror that you're you're experiencing in this book. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. So there we go. Made by the people of Petersfield. This is Shine Radio. Um, And we're joined by Nigel Farndale. He is the best-selling author of, amongst others, The Blasphemer, shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award, and Haw Haw, The Tragedy of William and Margaret Joyce, shortlisted for the Whitbed Prize and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize. Now, enough of that. I'm completely in awe of your interviews, Nigel, actually, so that's how I knew you best. Um, Oh, God. He has interviewed everybody, from Gillian Anderson to Kirsty Young, um, with every letter of the alphabet in between in sport, politics and culture. And Donald Trump, but we won't go there. When did you interview Donald Trump? That was a long time ago, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was 2008. Um, and when he, uh, when he did the interview, I don't think he was interested in politics at all. I got the strong feeling if he had any political bent, it was probably as a Democrat. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just what, what was striking about him as an interview subject. Of course, once he became presidential candidate, people started digging up that interview because he hadn't done that many because he pretty much hates the press. And it sort of went viral. And one of the reasons it went viral is because one of the questions I asked him was about his hair and yes. how, he, how, he kept, how he sort of got that effect, that, that sort of sunken apricot effect. And it was, he told me that it was to do with he, he wets it and then combs it and then hairsprays it. And that's what, uh, how he got that sort of static look. And then people just went wild. It, went, it did go viral, that, interview, <laughs> that section of it. it but it was, it was very striking how his concentration span was... Zero. It was, you know, you'd get to the end of a, a sentence or a question, or, and you could see him, the, the shutters came down. And he said, "Go ahead," as in, ask me something else, because I've, I'm, I'm not going to make a turn-taking oh, conversation. But you're always good in all the interviews that I've read, anyway, of asking the question I would like to ask. That you're not afraid to go where others. Well, nowadays with publicists and so on, you're given your list, aren't you? This, stick yeah. to this, this, and this. Yeah, you have to avoid having a, a publicist in the room. That's the, that's pretty important. <laughs> Otherwise, they might intervene, and you you sort of um, yeah, you've got to you've got to ask the questions you imagine that your readers are going to want the answers to, and it's it's often going to be awkward. Um, so I remember asking um, Will Carling about his his relationship with Princess Diana, which was cringe making because. You know, he he sort of, and he, in fact, he leaned forward and turned my tape recorder off, and and I just turned it back on. I said, "There's, there's no point in doing this off the record." So, so he sort of cringed and then did give a sort of that's a bit of an answer. But I just want to say, I read fifty of the interviews in your. I've got your the two thousand and two collection. I think it is. I'm jabbing my finger at him now, <laughs> which owes its title to an Andrew Billen quote. The three stages of a successful interview are flirtation, seduction and betrayal. So over to you, Tim. OK, um, well, we're, perhaps we might we might do an unsuccessful one in that case. Uh, <laughs> Let's get the first yeah, yeah. Um, So <laughs> we're straight to the betrayal. I'm going to talk about your new book, which is the, which is the main thing. Um, the, the Dictator's Muse, which has just come out. Um, and so tell us a bit about that. That's the first thing, really. Well, it, it's... A, it's uh, historical novel which um, ha- has as one of its characters a, a real person who is Leni Riefenstahl, the, the um, Hitler's favourite film director and she'd been a, an actress before she became a, a director and was um, made her name uh, as the director of Triumph of the Will and then uh, which was the, the film about the Nuremberg rally of 1934 and then she uh, went on to do her masterpiece as a director, which was the film of um, Olympia, uh, which was the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Uh, and, and in that, she was incredibly innovative. And, and she, she sort of changed the way that sport was filmed. And, and you, to this day, the, the Tokyo Olympics had lots of her techniques still used, be it from um, how you film uh, the, the events in the swimming pools, for, for example. Uh, she invented this uh, underwater camera, which meant you could follow the camera and could follow the diver into the water and carry on filming. And also she, she, was, she did this, these mesmerising um, techniques for 
filming high diving, which is one of the things we're slightly obsessed about in this right. country now. Um, and she she would even it was so subtle and, and sort of poetic that she could make the uh, there was one bit where the diver actually was going backwards back onto the board and pe- viewers didn't even realise because it was sort of so subtly done and, and repetitively done. And this, um, this filming from above as well is one of the things that you, you talk about in the book about mm. get these great big columns that, um, which so she could she could film down which hadn't really been done had it? Yeah, so she was the first to do um, aerial um, filmmaking not using a plane basically and yeah. for the for the Nuremberg rally what she how she did that was um uh, she got to the she got to Albert Speer Hitler's favorite architect to do her a little cage which went up the side of this this huge pole on which the swastikas one of three swastikas was was flying and she was able to film um the the rally which she'd sort of Helped choreograph as well. The, 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 the scenes, the famous scenes where these sort of um, huge groups uh, converge and then sort of fork, curve off to the sides, uh, which is almost like an abstract pattern. It, it is sounds strange to say, but it, it's, the, the, the filming is sort of beautiful and mesmerising, which is part of the problem because she, by being so good at her job, she turned Hitler into a sort of Wagnerian deity, that was part of her, the, the, the sort of brief in a way, because she was filming him from below, and um, he, he, there was something sort of monumental about the way he looked, and, and even the way she had this idea to film him arriving in Nuremberg in, in his uh, plane, and the, the plane formed a, a sort of crucifix on, on uh, pattern shadow on the, in the clouds below. So right from, this, from the opening sequence... There was this sense of it being um, him, of him being a sort of messianic figure arriving yeah. to to meet his people and and this was sort of her brainchild and and it became a great propaganda coup and and meant that she, forever after she was sort of tainted because uh, although she wasn't actually um, that interested in politics and she never joined the the, um, the Nazi party. Uh, she she was nevertheless that was too big a thing to to sort of be lightly dismissed, and when she um, later had her um, film about Olympia and went off to America to publicise it um, in 1938, she then came an absolute cropper because that was when uh, the news of Kristallnacht broke, all the Hollywood world turned against her and um, she was sort of sent packing back. To Germany. Why did you decide to write about her? What, what was it about her that really that got got your interest? Well, it sort of came about through through interviewing, actually, um, in that I was asked to do an interview with her, which I, I couldn't do because it clashed with another interview I was set up to do with, of all people, Ronnie Corbett. <laughs> and it's, it's quite a sort of uh, unlikely um, meeting mm. of, of these two celebrities. But... Uh, a colleague of mine went to, over to um, Germany to interview her instead. And um, and wh- when when he came back with this interview, and I, I was sort of reading it, I just became absolutely sort of entranced by her story. It's such a fascinating story because it, it's sort of... There's so many people with, with in whose orbit she sort of moved in. People like um, Goebbels was, was sort of obsessed with her and she was always having to bat him off and he was always sort of... He was, he was a bit sort of me too-ish and he was very sort of hands-on. Um, but what, what after, after re- reading that, that interview and sort of just getting more and more interested in her, I started reading biographies of her 
And then I read her memoir, which was fascinating be me because it was so unreliable. She was the ultimate unreliable narrator. And it seemed to me this was gave her great potential as a sort of fictional character because she essentially fictionalised her own life in a whole host of ways. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that really to me about the book is this, this whole notion of truth uh, in that she... She had her own truth and sort of Megan, her own her own truth. Uh, and also the idea that she created um, the sort of myth around around through her filmmaking. So she created um, untruth, if you like. And then she wrote herself because um, in the book, it's quite clear that that she keeps on um, giving details that aren't actually true or that turn out to be turn out to be just slightly different. Um and I was wondering whether whether that, that the notion of truth was something that's quite interesting to to look to have a good look at. Yeah, I mean, what what is it? Um, in in the last few years, partly to do with with Trump and his sort of obsession with fake news, um, but even uh, with with the way in which Trump was uh, an invention of Fox News, and Fox News was run by Roger Ailes, who was mm. obsessed with Triumph of the World, that, that film. And, right. and had, he'd, he'd been um, running Nixon's campaign uh, back in the 70s and had sort of used a lot of the filming techniques. Whatever. But, but with, with Trump, Trump sort of kept going on about that's fake news. And it was his way of just sort of uh, deflecting attention away from some outrageous thing he'd said, which was probably untrue. Uh, and... It, it's sort of we've we've all been having to think about these terms. What does post truth mean? We hear this quite a lot in in, in journalism. Is is all journalism fake? No, of course it isn't. You know, it's in fact a lot of one of one of the things I found from years of, of being in Fleet Street is is uh, you know what one thing people uh, are very suspicious of journalists, rightly so, and particularly tabloid journalists. But ta tabloid journalists are actually really sort of careful often. In ways in which that people people assume they're cavalier, but ultimately, you, you what you don't want is to get uh, sued for libel, uh, as in you you defamed someone and told a, told an untruth that is provable in court, because then you are going to cost your boss uh, millions, and you're going to get fired. You know the, the, the rat-like cunning of the journalist it means that you try and avoid that. So they're they're very often very careful. Um, but yeah, truth truth is it's a sort of um, there's a continuum of truth that you all sort of pick and choose a bit, yeah. don't you? But I was wondering whether, whether this notion of truth is, comes from interviewing all these famous people who are probably quite evasive or have got parts of themselves that they don't want to reveal, um, and that actually we all have that to a certain extent. It's not just famous people, but that's but famous people particularly do it, are, are mm. evasive about, about their lives. Um, yes, they, they often sort of have a, a, narr a narrative about their, their own lives, uh, from being profiled so often, you know, the sort of beginning, middle and end type stories. And they, they tell themselves and versions of themselves. Uh, and sometimes they might reinvent themselves and then give that version of themselves. But th that's the interesting thing that we all do it. Mm -hmm. And, we, and we, we also do it on social media. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, that's a new way in which we do it. We have um, on social media you refer to, you yeah. post a story, don't you? Yeah. It's yeah. a story about myself. This is my version of myself and yeah. and you're you're presenting a version of yourself to the world and instagram particularly yeah. it's often a very positive sort of me on a beach and look at me and uh it's heavily curated heavily yeah. curated and and it's like slightly sort of designed to make everyone else sort of 
jealous or whatever you know yeah but i think we you're right that we do absolutely all do it and they've just recently shown haven't they with research that almost from the moment we've had the experience the memory let's say fictionalizes it that that, that the memory instantly becomes unreliable even in our own heads and years ago i thought of of in a way, I think that's the way we carry on living because some of the stuff that we've done, you know, I'm not saying it's terrible, but, you know, you, you'd you get quite easily depressed Yeah, it's, it's if you w- didn't gloss it. Yeah, but even the way we tell our anecdotes, uh, are, they're polished. You know, mm. you, you, the more times you tell an anecdote, mm. uh, you, you improve it and you, you sort of... So you, can't, you get to the point where... I mean, it's, it's nothing sort of nasty most of the time it's just something in subtle ways you just sort of tell it better and and you may have strayed from the truth but the 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 thing is as you're telling it you completely believe it as well that's the curious thing isn't it mm. you know there's the stories i tell my my children about whatever growing, growing up in on a farm in yorkshire and and they'll 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 roll their eyes and they, they call it Nigel Bingo, you know. It's sort of like they, they've had bets on when I'll come, well, I'll tell that story or whatever. I, I won. I got five seconds or whatever. Yes. And uh, there's there's that sort of that, that whole telling thing, and you've, you've as you get older, you forget how many times you've told a story as well. Well, I suppose as a novelist, I mean, uh, it's interesting that you've chosen to to pick a true story or or, or to have a true real character anyway, not a true story, because uh, although her parts are presumably are accurate. But we've got other characters in the book, and I mustn't forget that actually, she, while she is the central character, there's actually other big characters in this book, and the book is not really entirely about her. She's she is a sort of, in some ways, she's a peripheral character to the real plot. I think almost. Um, but so so why did you? I mean, some, obviously some novelists do this quite a lot. They take a, they take real characters and they embellish their lives. And we've just been talking about um, Rodden, the 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 the. the go to the Sittenfeld book about um, Hillary Clinton where again he's she's taken her life and then said what if this happened um, and so you, in a sense you've done the same but I wonder why it must make it harder as a novelist if you've got a real character because you've got to you've got to sort of stick to the truth um, well you, you sort of do and you don't in a way that most if you look if you look at um, anyone everyone from Hillary Mantel to you could even say of Shakespeare you know Shakespeare did history mm. plays where he just runs with it, you know, and you're 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 finding a different kind of truth. I think that's that's the conceit, isn't it? Yeah. That you're sort of looking for something um, a deeper, a deeper truth. truth. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it sounds pretentious, but it, you, you you can sort of, and I I find as well because uh, my my previous novels I, I would have uh, real life people sort of have cameos in it, um, just because for me it, it it gave it more sort of texture. That the, the weave mm-hmm. sort of was more convincing to me because. Suddenly, uh, like Vaughan Williams, in, 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 there's a trench scene in *The Blasphemer* where he just sort of walks in and out, and and because he was there in that trench at that time, suddenly for me it's sort of so much more vivid and real mm-hmm. as as the, as the writer, and and then just sort of trying to make him interact with the with the fictional characters, uh, it just sort of g- g- gives it that sort of weft. Yeah, we have Oswald Mosley in this as well, of course, don't we? He he puts in an, an appearance or more than more than one appearance, and. Uh, because um, that's one of the other big themes of the book, I suppose, is, is, is about um, what's well, about fascism and, and um, the, the hold it had on English society at, at that time. And, and communism. And communism, absolutely. So you've got the, the, the two... I was just thinking, came across something that um, 
Stephen King said about about novel writing, saying often a, a good plot is the merging of two separate plots. And that's mm. that's the technique he, he often uses in his writing, and there, there was that's partly what was was happening here. So you've mm-hmm. got sort of two locations: you've got London, you've got Berlin, and the two narratives, and, and eventually that they they meet and they come together, and the story sort of interlock. Um, but the the original idea, I mean, that so it's, it was two original ideas. Is sort of what I'm saying. So there was there was the, the Lenny Riefenstahl idea about someone who completely made up their their own narrative about themselves and then tried to reinvent themselves in in their memoirs. And then there was the story, which I suppose I, I had. The, uh, I like the idea of um, because the, the the battles between the fascists and the communists in this country in the 30s were were so brutal, culminating in the Battle of Cable Street, which yeah. we've all seen the footage of that. It was the numbers were just mind-boggling, and the violence was mind-boggling. And um, I, I I like this idea of as almost. Um, um, this almost Shakespearean idea of um, Romeo and Juliet of the, the two houses and, and two two people being in love, but on the right, on the opposite sides. And how does that sort of work? How does that that gives you an instant sort of tension? Um, so yeah. that that, that there's, there's elements of that with the communists and the fascist uh, uh, characters in London. The other aspect of the book, of course, which is about about the Berlin Olympics, um, and I was wondering whether you, whether you'd kind of planned it to coincide because the Olympics were meant to be last year weren't they so that it wasn't really yeah. it wasn't really coinciding at all well it, it, that that did have a slight bearing on, on, on the timing of it um, I don't know whether it's had a, been reflected and, and people wanting to read about the Olympics in terms of timing but I, it's probably helped the reviewers when they, they thought well this is a book about the Olympics and so we can, you know, yeah, we can it gives tie it in of, it's yeah, just a bit of context for that yeah. reason yeah I mean it, it, it was with half an eye on, on the timing of the um, and I actually finished it a while ago. And as, as you've probably noticed in, in bookshops, you know, yeah. there's a lot of books being put on hold, because partly because bookshops weren't open. And yeah. um, so, yeah. was it actually due? To, so it was due to come out at the same time that it was, okay. it was meant to come out in 2020. Yeah, so it's it's pretty <laughs> much, it was pretty much finished last year. I mean, there's yeah. a bit of uh, proofing and, and the sort of editing went on this this year, but it's it was sort of pretty much there last year. Uh, so it could have we could have probably. Uh, Turned it and has it. has the more time to, to tinker with it? Is it as it meant meant it's better or, or less good? I mean, <laughs> sometimes with with uh, yeah. with kind of um, works of art, you know, if you have too much time, spend too much time, and they kind of yeah. you can, they can go dip down again. But I'm sure that didn't happen with this. No, there's that thing about you. You don't really finish a book. You you abandon it. Right. And and <laughs> you could always go on sick to tinkering death of it. it. Yeah, that, that, the sick to death of it side is interesting because you, you you read so many proofs. Uh, at so many different stages and so many drafts. This has been through about 10 different drafts. So it took a long time to write, uh, several years. And um, the, But off and on, because I've got a sort of day job. But you do sort of have that um, that business of, of slightly um, just just getting to... You reread it so often that you're sort of sick of the sight of it. You get too close to it, and I, I, I find it hard to reread stuff just because it's just too familiar, and and I, I just don't. Yeah, and you're partly you're moving it, moving on anyway. But it is it is a sort of trait. It, I, I, do you know about um, Degas with his paintings? He had a real uh, fear of finishing his 
Well, it was his personal drawings. Right. And, and he used to give them to friends, and his friends would chain them to the walls because they knew if he came round to, you know, <laughs> he'd take it off the wall and, and get his Start black more. charcoal out and absolutely ruin it because he couldn't it finish it. It was Chagall as well at the Vernissage, wasn't it? He'd be going round with his oil paint. They'd go, for God's sake, because, because oil takes forever yeah. to dry. Yeah. Exactly. We're all the same. So how do you how do you find time to to write? Do you do you kind of set part of the day aside, or do you just say, well, I'm going to take a, a month off from work and and write and write? Or no, I've never. I've always sort of kept kept the sort of um, journalist side, just because it's a, a regular income, apart from anything else. When, whenever the, I have a spare moment, making the most of it, and, and often weekends and holidays, and um, and getting up early in the morning, I, I like to sort of write first thing in the morning. Right. So, that's when I sort of went mentally fresh and, and you're just sort of much more productive. Um, sure. And long train journeys, we were talking before we put the rep, you know, mics on about commuting up to London. That's a sort of hour and 20 minutes from yeah. from where we are here. And presumably that, that time, you've now ha- you now have that time that you didn't have before over the last 18 months. You've had, when you've not been commuting, you've had time to actually do some proper writing. Yeah. Um, because it's all very well sitting on a jolty train trying to to concentrate, but it's well, not quite the quite, same. It's, there's, there's something about it's very conducive about writing on trains. I think it's the movement. There's something about the if you've got a table and a laptop, there's something quite meditative about it. Okay. I think the, right. the rhythm of a train. I well, perhaps I'll try it next I time. Quite, I quite like <laughs> it. up to town. Um, but because this is it's quite interesting. I, I feel this is quite a change from the your previous two two novels anyway, in that. In that they were um, just sort of more complex in a sense. They, they, the two the, the Robertines, which had two time time periods really, and the the Blasphemer, which had sort of sort of spirit, more spiritual dimension to yeah. it. And this is just a it's a more straightforward book in some ways. It has the time shift though as well? That's what I found familiar. Yeah, and it's, it's romance. I'm going back to this. I'm sorry. I just think you've written in. We've said nothing about why Kim Newlands how does he come into it and how you've managed to create somebody that you really for me what keeps you reading um and this is what I'm going to say because it can sound a bit dry as dust I think for listeners it so isn't because you so care about the outcome and Kim is such a wonderfully sweet gentle lovely person where did he come from and why was he in it why did you construct it's autobiographical him? isn't it yeah <laughs> of course i'm looking yeah. at this adonis now and we are radio yeah uh, thanks um, <laughs> yeah I, I i he sort of evolved i think it actually in his first incarnation he was he was a much sort of a more aggressive sort of uh, you know obsessed with uh, sporting achievement and all this and, and a lot of sportsmen have to be selfish it comes with the territory, and I sort of that's an idea I was playing with, but but gradually sort of he softened and and sort of developed these sort of you you, you almost sometimes if a character is working well you almost find yourself observing them and and sort of finding out about them, and then once you've got that sort of a character established, then you you're almost uh, just recording what putting them in a situation, and if their character is consistent, then they'll they'll behave in a way that's can you know as their character should behave and you sort of just take notes watching them he's also it's a character that reveals the character of the others in the book and mm. I think it's extraordinary as well that his oppo is you like Jesse Owens we all know about that again could be a monster character 
Um, but yet it's the two women that really hold the heart of um, the dominance, the dominant heart of the book, if you like, yeah. which is fascinating for me. But I think it, it's, it's uh, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a book which has got a lot, a lot going on in it. And um, uh, we both really enjoyed it, didn't we? We really so, did. So that's, really uh, did. So, Nigel Farndale, you're on a desert island in case nobody ever invites you on on Radio 4, but I think they will. Um, desert island, you're allowed one book. What is it going to be? It's Billy Liar by <gasps> Keith Waterhouse. And um, it, it had a huge impact on me when I, when I read it. I'd probably be about 18 or 19, which is probably about what, what age Billy Lyre is in the book and I grew up in, in Yorkshire and it's a, it's about a Yorkshireman who's sort of he's he's it's a comic novel but he, he gets uh, he inhabits a fantasy world he's always daydreaming and I think I was very like that and, and so I find it an incredibly relatable but also incredibly funny book and, and just the way he gets his is incredibly complicated love life, and uh, <laughs> he can't say no to people, and, and just sort of he's a. And, but then he's also you're sort of willing him to sort of do what he know, you know he wants to do, and he can't bring himself to do it, and it's just it's just such a wonderful. He gets trapped, doesn't he, by circumstance? Yeah, he does at every turn. Because I haven't returned to, but I'm going to. Yeah. I'm definitely going. I love Keith Walter. I think I think I've read it two or three times over the years, not recently, so. But it is when, because it's funny being asked that because there's so many novels that are important yeah. to you. But then that just popped into my head as, as being. And I think you have to the, go with that. Yeah. So that, do, do you, do you, uh, do you, if one of your things that you want, you would like to write a comic novel or, or, or is that just, uh, uh, do you think it's not in you, the comic novel? Do you know, I think, I think I did, everyone has novels that they write in their. Twenties uh, that get, that get put in uh, bottom shelves, and I did actually write a comic no- novel which didn't get published. Um, I, I, it was really bad, I think. That's why. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, I, I sort of never. I don't know. No, I, I never have. No, I, I think maybe, maybe I, as I've I've had a sort of uh, an outlet for that in terms of writing columns for the. Telegraph and the Times, which are quite light-hearted, I think that's uh, right. That's okay, so you've got your you've got it out of, out of the system yeah. there. <laughs> that desire. Right, that was absolutely brilliant, Nigel. Thank you so much for coming. I'm sure there's lots more we could have said about it, but Tempest Fujit. So we must away. So thank you so much. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Nigel. Petersfield's Shine Radio. Well, that was brilliant, Tim, and I thought it's it's really interesting how the this whole thing has gelled. So now it's what are we to look out for? Well, I've got a few books that are coming out uh, this month. Um, the first one I'm going to talk about is 1979 by Val McDermott. Now, you probably think of her as a slightly gruesome crime, oh. and this is a new direction for her. She's, she's writing really about what uh, her early career, because she used to be a journalist... Uh, journalist on a on a tabloid newspaper in 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 Scotland, and this character is 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 obviously perhaps loosely based on her, uh, called Ali Burns. Ali Burns, and she is a, uh, a obviously very talented young um, reporter for a tabloid, um, a Scottish tabloid, and she comes across something a a something big, and her and this other young reporter. 
start to investigate it. And I won't tell you what happens because obviously that you know that would give too much away. But um, I think it's it's quite it's quite gritty, but it's not too brutal, right. and it's quite it sort of it sort of rings true. I mean, I I think I know more than I probably need to know about about being a tabloid writer on a on a Scottish tabloid in the in the um, in nineteen seventy nine. I think well, it's it is a bit like reading Private Eye. I mean, it's sort of like it <laughs> from the from from that time. You know, everybody seems to be permanently drunk. At least all the men do. Uh, and she obviously is is working out what's going on without without having to um, uh, getting involved in the drinking culture. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's a real eye-opener of what it must have been like to 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 be in papers in that in that era. And is Margaret Thatcher on the throne at that time? Uh, it's not. It's not. It's very Scottish actually. It's okay, not, so it's it's not, not really about um, English politics at all. Oh, um, although I mean, it is it is slightly about the end of the. That, that time when they you know the nineteen seventy nine when the um, when everyone seemed to be on strike and um, oh, yes. the winter of discontent and all that sort of thing. But you but, were a babe in arms. Uh-huh, too. Yeah, I remember it well. But anyway, so that that's that's what um, that's the first one, Val McDermott. Uh, second one is the new Pat Barker. Ah. Now this is called The Women of Troy, and it's a sequel to uh, The Silence of the Girls. Um, uh, which I absolutely loved. I mean, it, it, talking of brutal books, it, that was pretty brutal, I have to say. Uh, and I suspect this one might be as well. I haven't read it yet. She writes um, beautifully, yeah. though. No, she's it, a wonderful writer. She writes really well about war, I think. Um, yes. And she wrote the f- fabulous trilogy about about re- the Regeneration trilogy, yeah. um, about um, uh, the 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 trauma of of the trenches mm. and what what it did to what it did to people's minds uh, rather than actually the the actual fighting and um, so she 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 does understand uh, and writes really well and about she researches that. so thoroughly yeah absolutely she? and and although this is it's obviously sort of um, it, she's ta- she's making a story out, out of sort of the mythology of of, of the Trojan War. Um, and but but I think I mean one of the things actually about reading the science of the, the science of the girls you want to know what happens next um, and this is what happens next so uh, I look forward to reading that the, the third book is completely different it's non-fiction uh, it's by the well-known ballroom dancer and um, politician Ed Balls uh, uh, he's just he's he's also been he's also I think he's the winner of some celebrity um, cooking program which I've never heard of but uh, but I'm sure everyone else knows no I knows. watched it uh, you watched I it I okay. watched him right. I cheered for him uh, right uh, well this is a book it's called Appetite and it's basically about um, him, him him growing up it's not an autobiography but it, food features quite heavily in his in his growing up he no he, pun intended he, <laughs> he's always been he's always been a uh, uh, loved his loved his his tucker and um so it's a it's it's all appetite and um i think it, it just sounds really interesting and i think he's an interesting character i think that uh, the fact that he managed to reinvent himself uh having been a a um well, perhaps not that successful politician but certainly someone who got Got to the top in, in in or pretty much the top in politics, um, and then reinvented himself, having lost his lost his parliamentary seat as a as somebody who could actually communicate with people on a different level, mm. um, not not uh, on a soapbox, but just he just his his uh, his manner just seems to work better when he's not in doing politics. But uh, so that's 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 the third, the fourth one is another novel actually. I'm forgetting back to novels again by John Boyne. Now he did. Um, 
the boy in the striped pajamas, uh, uh, as well as, as a series of very very good actual actually adult novels, which I've, of which I've read a few. Um, Echo Chamber, it's called, and it's it's about um, he's he's recent. Well, I'll do a bit of background. He's recently been stung quite badly by getting involved in in social media and and in the cancel culture and oh, no. uh, saying saying things that that he thought were completely reasonable to say, but but somebody took a great offence to. And anyway, so so he got he's he got involved in that and got badly burnt in that. And he's written a he's written a novel about kind of based around the idea of a of a family that that's. Um, very media savvy and very good at social media um and then one day the wheels come off and so that's that's it's about that. i think i think it's a sort of satire really does that um, work because sometimes you can be too close to things well i don't know i i it's it's have, haven't seen i haven't i haven't read it yet no okay. uh, people have been talking about it and yeah. i think he he's a, again a really good writer so hopefully he will he will he will have done a good job on it but that so that's coming out those are all coming out in August. Because even Philip Pullman's been burnt recently, hasn't he? Yes. Very recently, last Yeah, I days. think um, well, uh, one of the books I was talking about earlier, Catelyn Moran, uh, she talks about social media and she talks about um, you know, the, the danger of this, the whole cancel culture mm. thing. And um, she doesn't, she doesn't go, you know, she doesn't come out in any particular direction on any particular subject. She just says that you know, we we need to be a bit kinder and gentler, and that's I suppose that's pretty obvious, really. Mm. Um, but that, but that this, this idea that that it's the constant acceleration of um, somebody says something, or someone says something slightly more extreme, and then and then the position that you, you that you had beforehand, which seemed quite sensible yeah. and tame and normal, suddenly becomes out, outlandishly um, off kilter somehow. And I, I I think that's that's it's really sad. And I think it's one of the things that that social media is really has done really badly. But and I tell you one of the dangers as an author who is also on Twitter a lot is that people think because you're an author everything you write you mean and you express yourself beautifully and of course you don't because you've just written 120 characters off the top of your head. Mm-hmm. I always make sure drink has not yeah. been taken but <laughs> it's not going through copy edit proofread no several drafts i no. think it's really dangerous for well I, I i do think that's one of the problems with with uh twitter really is that is that you know you you dash something off even when you when you think it or feel it and and uh, that's why i don't actually do do much in the way <laughs> in i know way of i noticed I, but I, I tell you the good side of it though and the really good side of it is over the weekend um i don't know how i noticed but there was something about um joan aiken and Joan Aiken's one of my favourite. In fact, it might be a backlisted choice. The Wolves of Willoughby Chase. The Wolves of Willoughby Chase yeah. was, was, was one of my favourites. But there are many others. Mm-hmm. And her granddaughter, I think, was on there and everything. But I found several really good bloggers because of that who, who talk about books very much like us, Tim. Mm. Um, but also yeah. we then got onto Diana Wynne-Jones and I've linked through to Petersfield Bookshop so that I always hope in the backlisted bit that we do that people will also go there and see if they can get a copy. Yes. So uh, well, I, so, so that's the good side of, of it. That's the good side. Uh, it does link people up and it, it, it connects people with enthusiasms and, and, and that's great. Um, just the danger is, is, is when people start to... Uh, attack people that's not so good yeah absolutely so now we're moving on to my backlisted choice and again as my producer has said a brilliant choice for radio 
is the Pictorial Guide to the Lakeland Fells, being an illustrated account of a study and exploration of the mountains in the English Lake District by A. Wainwright. Now, if you don't know these books, you are really missing a treat because A. Wainwright, as he liked to be known and not Alfred Wainwright, or A.W. sometimes, is one of my heroes. And when life's getting a bit much, which I think you'll have gathered... um, for for Tim and for me this month has been you know a bit full-on and we've all known about climate and everything and have suffered rain I just love to look at these books to begin with and this is book five so if you don't know what it is it's a tiny pocket-sized book um, and this man um, who's dead now went and fell in love with the Lake District when he was 23 And he wrote, or really I should say illustrated, because he hand-wrote, the calligraphy is beautiful. And he wrote seven books, um, from the Eastern Fells to the Western Fells, and everything else in between. The first one published in 1955, the last one published in 1966, and deliberately were never revised um, for a long, long time. They are now, but in his lifetime were never revised because he wanted you to actually go out and do these walks and make notes yourself of any changes. And he's done beautiful line drawings. So this one I'm looking at on the frontispiece. Book five is dedicated to those who travel alone, the solitary wanderers on the fells, who find contentment in the companionship of the mountains and of the creatures of the mountains. And Tim, I've just found this almost like a meditation to just turn the pages. And I think I'm linking a bit with my wild walks now that it's not just the physical one foot in front of the other, but one is also walking through a landscape which has its own features and its own history, but also often one's own history. So even looking at these pages, I think I bought this book in probably 1986. And I'm looking now at um, the pages on Blencathra. So I'm just showing Tim. So you also get beautiful line drawings which deliberately he chose to do because they are ageless and if you would have a photograph in there like when you look at old postcards they're really dated and yet there's something about that quite simple black and white drawing which um, shows it's a finger post so Mungrisdale two miles and Heskett Newmarket nine miles Um, But there's also standing stones opposite. Now, you're right, it doesn't date. And if you look at old um, picture books from, from, well, from 20th century ones, really, um, they look terribly old and they date very quickly. And um, also there's something much more beautiful about about beautiful drawings, really. It's stunning. Had you come across this series? Yes, I have, yes. They're a bit out of fashion now because, um, well, he died some time ago now, and... Um, but people still still do want them. If if you are a, a committed walker and you're going to going to be doing a a good section of the lakes, uh, there's, there's no better guide really. I think to be able to make changes in it, so you can literally look through your own book and and make the changes, 
always, as he says, with an ordnance survey map for the actual things. But he discovered paths that weren't actually even on the ordnance survey maps or mistakes that they'd made and so on. So in a way, this is a, a truer guide. It's certainly a truer historic guide. And I would just literally read the first because really it's it's about the whole thing. It's not like reading a, a novel, but just this this just gives a tiny taste because we've all heard of Blencathra, I think, probably. 2,847 feet. Natural features. Blencathra is one of the grandest objects in Lakeland and one of the best known. Seen from the southwest, the popular aspect, the mountain rises steeply and in isolation above the broad green fields of Threlkeld, a feature being the great sweeping curve leaping out of the depths to a lofty summit ridge, where the skyline then proceeds in a succession of waves to a sharp peak before descending again in a graceful curve to the valley pastures far to the east. I love that. And the fact he then goes on to talk about the the farms that he sees and the fact they used to be horses and how important the horse was and now tractors and sadness. And one of the things he says elsewhere is actually we don't know where all this is heading. And sadly, of course, now we do know where all that was heading of the deforestation and so on. But mostly I just find this oh it it's just a meditation to just look through it so i hope i've done it even mild justice and i do commend it to you all yeah i think it's almost it's a sort of historical artifact really as well isn't it this is this is a picture of a time um not not just literally a picture which it is there are pictures of of that time but also um the 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 cadence of the writing which is That's which true. is is of its time mm. That's absolutely right. And also, I suppose I hadn't thought about that. But one of the things people have said about the Wild Walks is that it's as if I'm talking to one person. Well, of course, I am. In my imagination, I'm chatting to the person that I would be walking with. And I think he does exactly the same thing. He doesn't address readers. He's addressing the one person who will be really interested in what he's writing about. So I love it. Next month... Uh, we'll be talking to Peter Thiel author Jennifer Selway, oh, yes. whose book is just out, The Making of Horror Movies, Key Figures Who Established the Genre. She was the executive editor of the Daily Express and before that a journalist on The Observer, so she knows her stuff. Another journalist. Another journalist. How did we do that? Well, you'll love the horror segment, won't you, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> I'm off to read Dennis Wheatley. Actually, that would better be my backlisted choice next time. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for, for listening today. Um, don't forget, you can get this, you can download this podcast from all the usual places. Um, and uh, we look forward to next month. You've been listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, produced by John Wellsman. With Petersfield's Shine Radio. Rise and, Rise and shine. Whatever local information comes in, you'll be the very first to know. You'll feel those ribs 
expand. And okay, then... I'm doing it, I'm doing Are it. Are you doing it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, welcome back to Rise and Shine. You're with Alan Cox this morning. What could be better? Good morning, it's good to be with you. I'm Harrison RB. It's the brighter way to start your day in the Petersphere. As long as you're breathing, you're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so with you, Vicky. <laughs> Rise and shine, weekday mornings from six, with Petersfield's Shine Radio. I think that's lovely.